Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel, or if you have a copy of this story, we're in chapter 10. And for those who may be uh, visiting today, we're going through a series that's called The Story that looks at uh, key passages in the Scripture going from Genesis to Revelation. And we're talking about some of the big themes, big ideas that we find there. And uh, today we're actually one-third of the way through our series in The Story. And one of the things I, I hope you've noticed is just how relevant each chapter is to our life and to our times. You know, when I think about Scripture, the stories we read in the Bible are as current as today's headlines. And we will see that again today, just how uh, uh, current God's Word is to the situations that we are even dealing with as individuals and as people. All right, well, I want to begin with prayer, and then we're going to start the message. Let's pray. Father, this morning we're going to look at the story of the birth of the monarchy in Israel. And we see a time when people were desperate and they were calling out to you, but they really didn't know what they needed. They knew what they wanted, but they didn't know what they need. And Father, sometimes we are like that too. And I pray that we would learn to humble ourselves before you, to turn from our sin, to seek your face and your will, and to follow you fully. And Father, we see the difference that in life and the way things go, even in these stories of Scripture, when people trust you and when they don't. And so, Lord, would you teach us today as we look into your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to be looking at the life of Saul, Israel's first king. And what we see in his life is a man who started strong, who at the beginning of his reign when he was chosen to lead Israel looked good, you know, looked like the kind of person that God could use and to be a great king. And in fact, he had some early success in battle uh, as a military leader. But then he made some bad moral choices and he fell hard because of it. That's why this message is called Standing Tall and Falling Hard. But when I made that comment about how the stories we read in the Bible are as current as today's headlines, I couldn't help but think, as I was working on the message this week, uh, every day on the news that seemed to be a new article about General Petraeus and his affair with Paula Broadwell. And I think of General Petraeus, who is one of the most respected generals in our time. I mean, he's credited with turning around two wars, both in Iraq and Afghanistan, and having great success there, you know, and doing all these uh, very, very good things as a military leader. And yet he made a poor moral choice in his personal life, and that's now come out. And it has cost him his job, and it has tarnished his reputation. I don't bring that up to cast stones at General Petraeus or at anyone else. But my point in this is to say what the Scripture says. That the same thing can happen in our life if we are not careful to guard our heart and maintain our walk with the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 to 13, the Scripture says that these things happen to them as examples. He's talking about these Old Testament stories happened as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. For no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. 
and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. In other words, in this life, what we're going to see are those same kind of temptations that were snares to Israel. And these stories were written for our benefit, that we would take it to heart and not think that, you know, this will never happen to us, or we're good, we're good, you know, I got this all together. But to be wise and to be on our guard and to walk with God in humility every day of our life. So that's what we're going to look at today. And there are three dangers that I want to point out in the book of 1 Samuel. The first one is the danger of phoniness. The danger of phoniness, and we find that in chapters 1 to 4. The book of Judges actually, excuse me, the book of Samuel actually begins where the book of Judges ends. Remember at the end of Judges it said, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. That was a problem. If everybody, you know, lives by their own value system, their own sense of what's right and wrong, and they kind of express that, Uh, It can lead to anarchy in the land when there is no common law or bond to govern the people. And that's what was going on. And so the book of Judges was really written as a defense of the monarchy. This is why we need a king. Things have gotten so bad, we need a king. But in a short time, they're going to see that having a king isn't exactly the answer either. When we come to 1 Samuel, what we see is that religious hypocrisy was everywhere. Uh, Eli, who is the priest who is serving at Shiloh, that's where the tent of meeting was, or that's where the, uh, the tabernacle stood. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were wicked men. And if you've read through this part of the story, you understand that they were guilty of several things. Chapter 2 tells us that when people came to bring their offering to the Lord, they would take the best of the offerings for themselves. In other words, they were robbing from God. And then when people came uh, to worship, they would threaten them and they'd say, listen, if you don't do this, we're going to take it by force. Uh, They were like thugs at the temple. And not only that, but they also were sexually immoral. They slept with the women who served at the house of the Lord. And so all these things were going on, and Eli saw it, and he warned them about it, but he did not discipline them. They were serving as priests. He did not remove them from their positions. And because of that, Eli also would suffer God's judgment. But sadly, the people were just like the priests. And they were also guilty of treating God poorly. They treated him more like a good luck charm rather than as their Lord and King. And there's a story in 1 Samuel 4 when they went into battle against the Philistines and they were defeated, routed by their enemy and several thousand died. They came back to camp and they said, you know, what's wrong? What was the problem? Why did this happen? But rather than examining their own heart or thinking about their relationship with God and acknowledging their sin, they thought it was because they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant with them in battle. And they remembered some of those stories of old where, you know, when they brought the Ark into battle, how God won a victory. And so they're thinking, if we just have the Ark here, the Ark of the Covenant, this symbol of God's presence, well, then certainly we'll have victory. So they brought the ark into battle, but God was not pleased with them. And the enemy, the Philistines, routed them. They captured the ark 
And Hophni and Phinehas, these two wicked sons of Eli, were killed. And when Eli hears the news of what happened, he also fell over and died. You see, God is not impressed by outward appearances of religion. People can have a form of religion. They can go to church. They can say, I believe in God. You know, I'm there. Or they can give to the poor or do good things in their life. But if our heart is not right with God, if we've never truly come into a personal relationship with Him, it doesn't mean anything. It's all a front. Our faith must be genuine. It's got to be authentic, real on the inside, and then it should show itself in the way that we live. There should be a distinction, the Bible says, between the people of God and those who are part of the world. And that can only happen when we have truly come to know Him as our Savior and Lord. And so what did God do in this time when there was so much religious hypocrisy? God's answer was to raise up a man who would be his spokesman in that generation. And the story begins not with the birth of Saul, Israel's first king, but it begins with the birth of Samuel, the man of God. And here's what it says in chapter 1. This is on page 129 in the story. There was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf. He was an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. So here we have this story beginning in kind of an out-of-the-way place with a family that's really unknown. You know, nobody really knows this family. And it's kind of, uh, you know, why is this story even being told? And here's a man, again, who has two wives. That's not a good thing. We've seen this before, and what we've looked at, that's not God's will at all. And again, there is a rivalry that is set up between these two women because Peninnah has children and Hannah is barren. And so her rival would provoke her, kind of rub it in her face and say, you know, ha, God's blessed me and not you. And Hannah would just be broken in her heart. I mean, to have a child in those days was so important. And, and here she is. She is broken. She's a woman who loves God. And when she goes up to the temple, she prays. And she prays and she asks God for a son. And she says, God, if you will give me a son, I will give him to you for all the days of his life. Well, God heard her prayer. And the child that is born is Samuel. And his name means heard of God, that God heard and answered her prayer. When he is old enough to be weaned, which is still a very young age, you know, and uh, Gail and I, my wife and I were talking about this and going, you know, can you imagine having a son, praying for him, and then if it is as young as, say, three years of age when he was weaned and brought to the temple, can you imagine leaving your three-year-old son to be raised by others at this temple of the Lord? And that's what Hannah did. She brought her son uh, there to the temple to Eli to give him over to the Lord. In uh, chapter 1, verse 28, it says, So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. 
Now, in Hebrew, there is a pun that's going on here. The word given over in Hebrew sounds just like the word for Saul. Saul, the first king. And what it is saying is that Samuel was given over to the Lord. He was wholehearted in his devotion to the Lord. And that's the way Saul should have been, but he was not. And there is this contrast that's being set up between this man who knows God and loves God and who will live for him and this man who is divided in his heart and who turns away from God. We'll see Samuel's response in chapter 3 when God calls him. He is a young child. We don't know his exact age at the time, but he is serving in the temple. And he goes to sleep one night and he hears this voice calling Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel thinks that it's Eli calling for him. And he'll go to Eli and he'll say, you know, kind of like, what? (laughs) Here I am. And uh, Eli said, I didn't call you. And he'll go back and lie down. He'll hear the voice again, goes back to Eli and Eli's not calling And when it happens a third time, Eli recognizes that this is the Lord speaking to him. And it says that Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Samuel had not yet come into this kind of personal relationship with God. And so Eli instructs him that when the Lord calls you again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And Samuel's response is a reflection of his heart. And when the Lord calls, Samuel answers him and says, Speak, for your servant is listening. Samuel was everything that God wanted to see in a king. Samuel was humble, he was teachable, and he was willing to obey. It's the same kind of heart and attitude God is looking for today in his people. He wants us to be a people who are humble before him, honest, open, Not wearing a mask, not being phony, not putting on things as though things are better than they really are, but being real and genuine about our relationship with Him and honest about our sin. Being teachable, people who love God's Word and who delight in it and take it to heart and then put it into practice, the people who are willing to obey what God has said and to follow His Word. And we see that in Samuel. And God will say of Samuel in verse 19 that the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up and he let none of his words fall to the ground. Samuel would be God's spokesperson in that generation. And God would use Samuel and Samuel was obedient. He would say what God said even if it was hard or difficult to say. And God used him. And his words came to pass. Samuel would serve God as a prophet, as a priest, and as a judge. In fact, he would be the last of the judges in this line of the story. And again, it is remarkable that this book, which is about the start of Israel's monarchy, begins not with the story of Saul, but it begins with the birth of Samuel, the man of God. What is God trying to say here to us? Well, I believe he's saying to all of us that we cannot fake our faith. It's got to be genuine. It's got to come from our heart. It has to be real where we have given ourselves over to the Lord in surrender. 
and asked him to forgive our sins and to be our savior otherwise it's just a form of religion and it profits nothing a second danger we see in this book is the danger of conformity the danger of wanting to be just like everybody else and if you uh, have your Bible, turn to chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 1 to 5. It's on page 135 in the story. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. And the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. So here we have a man too who is a a good man who has served the Lord, but who has not done well as a father. Or perhaps he has tried to train his sons as a father, but his Sons have chosen not to walk with God. I mean, there's no guarantee in this that that when we raise up our children and bring them to church or to hear the Word of God, that they're going to follow in our steps. Each child must make their own decision. Each child must personally make that decision to follow Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And we read here how Samuel's sons must have been an embarrassment to him and that they turned aside after dishonest gain, they accepted bribes, and they perverted justice. And again, we see that nothing's really new here under the sun, is it? I mean, these aren't just things that happen in Washington, D.C., or Moscow, or Mexico City, or places around the world in these centers of power where there is this temptation toward corruption toward accepting bribes or giving favors or working the system for your own advantage. Here we see Samuel's sons trying to do the very same thing 3,000 years ago. And the people saw it too, and they didn't like it. And they came to Samuel and gave them one more reason where they said, you know what, we need a king. Now, I don't know quite how they thought a king was going to solve all of their problems Because the real problem here is our sin nature. It's our heart. But they came and they asked for a king, and their rationale is that they wanted to be like all the other nations around them. And they thought that somehow that this king then would be the one who would lead us into battle, win our victories. He would instill justice in our land. This would be a good thing for us. And Samuel warned them what it would be like if they had a king. And we see that in this same chapter, beginning in verse 11. He said, This is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. They're going to serve, they're going to be drafted into the army. And they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. And others he will assign to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. 
Your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. And he'll take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. Not a pretty picture, but a realistic one of what is going to happen. Do you really understand what it means? Do you understand what you are asking for and wanting a king to rule over you? And in verse 19, the people refused to listen to Samuel. And they said, no, we want a king over us. And then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel was disappointed. He was displeased with what they said, but God said to Samuel, It is not you they are rejecting, but it is me they are rejecting as their king. Can you imagine how God felt? I mean, rejection hurts. Rejection can hurt deeply. I mean, if you uh, have been in a relationship and you've been rejected. Maybe uh, it was your spouse and you were rejected. When a husband, for example, leaves his wife for another woman, that hurts deeply, doesn't it? Or when a student really wants to make a team and tries out for the team and doesn't make the cut, that hurts. When someone you thought was a friend, that, that you wanted to be in this group of friends and you wanted to be a part of that, when someone rejects you and doesn't think that you're good enough to be part of that circle of friends or you're not cool enough or you don't fit in, that hurts. But here it was, God's people whom he had brought out of slavery in Egypt and brought into this promised land who are now saying to him that, God, we don't need you. You know what, God? We've got a better plan. God, we can do this on our own. We just think that if, if we have this earthly king, well, we can take care of things on our own. I wonder, and at times I feel like that's what we have done as a nation, too. Step by step, we have said no thanks to God. We don't need you anymore. In fact, I'm not sure we ever needed you we've got a better plan and we have seen in our own country this movement away from god where we had said no uh, we don't want to post the ten commandments in public places because you know someone might read them and actually be inclined to follow them and that would not be a good thing we don't want that anymore and we've said to god no we don't want prayer and our schools or prayer in public places because, you know, after all, there are many gods and so we're not really sure you are the one true God. No, we don't want to follow you anymore. We've even come to the point of revising our history, not so sure we ever were a Christian nation in spite of evidence in our historical documents. We are redefining when life begins and ends. And we are redefining what we think about marriage under our own terms and not God's. And what happens when we move that way? Where is this going to lead? And when we throw out God's law, whose law are we going to follow? And will it just be the, the will of the majority? Is it whatever the 51% decides 
that's going to be right and wrong going forward from here? I mean, where does it lead when you throw out the basis of this Judeo-Christian ethic of God's Word that's been a foundation for our society for over 200 years? Will it lead to a point in our own land where everyone will do what's right in their own eyes? I wouldn't be surprised if the day comes when we will experience even in America religious persecution in a way that we have never had before. And where certain things, even preaching what God says in His Word, will be considered hate speech and will be offensive to many people. And they'll say, you can't say that anymore. You know, we've moved beyond that. We don't believe that anymore. And where will we stand in that day? There will be a sifting even in the church of the people who hold to what God has said and the people who say, you know what? We want to be like all the other nations around us. And we're going to follow them. The people of Israel forgot their purpose, that they were called to be a light to the nations. You see, we are not called to be like the world. We are called to be like Christ. And we're called to declare God's glory to the world. And how can we do that if there is no distinction at all? In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, I love these words. Peter says that you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Now, who's he talking about there? He's talking about the church. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles who have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ and he is taking these wonderful promises and he is saying that you are God's chosen people. And you are this priesthood. You are those individuals who represent God to the world. You are to be a witness to them. You are a holy nation set apart for Him that you might declare the praises of this one who has called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. You know, I don't know, if you're ever feeling down, just read those words and think of what God says of you and me. And think of our calling, think of our purpose, that we are called to follow Christ and not the world around us, so stand firm. The third danger I see in this book is the danger of disobedience. I kept going back and forth whether to call it partial obedience because we see that so much in Saul or whether to call it disobedience, but they're really the same thing. The danger of disobedience. We see it in chapters 13 and 15. God allowed the people of Israel to have a king even though it wasn't his perfect will for them. All right? He said to Samuel, they want a king, we're going to give them a king. Now, that's a scary thought that sometimes God gives us what we ask for. I mean, sometimes he does. He just says, you know, kind of like a parent when your child is asked over and over and over again, and finally you go, you know, they're not getting it. Maybe what they need to get is to get what they ask for, and they'll see the consequences of it. And so God gives them a king. And, uh, you know, he's saying to them, I mean, you think you can make it on your own without me? Okay, well, I'm going to give you this king, and then we'll check in in about 50 years and see how that went for you. And so he gives them a man who looks like the kind of king that they want. 
Uh, Saul is described as this man who is the most handsome man in all the kingdom. I mean, there, there couldn't be a better looking guy that they could have found. And he stands a foot taller than anyone else. So he fits the mold of this guy who's like tall, dark, and handsome. And he just, man, he fits the profile of what we thought a king should look like. But it's all external. And they appointed him as their king and they praised him, you know, and they celebrated this anointing of Saul. But again, it's all external. It's not internal. And I think how, you know, sometimes we as people do a poor job of selecting our leaders. Because of that reason, we look at the outside rather than the character and the heart. And there are times when we elect celebrities or we elect a person who looks the most handsome or who talks the most smoothly who may not be the most qualified person. God looks at people differently. He looks at the heart. And I know that that is what's difficult for us because honestly, we can't see the heart of an individual. We have to look at their pattern and their lifestyle and things that are external. But we're looking to see the proof of a heart that is right with God. Samuel anointed Saul as king, and in chapter 11, he leads Israel to victory over the Ammonites. And they have this great victory, and the people are thinking, this is wonderful. I mean, this is why we wanted a king. I mean, this is the answer. This is why we wanted a king, but it wouldn't last for long. In chapter 12, Samuel will give his farewell address to the people and he warns them. He says, you know this, having a king can work out if both you and the king fear the Lord and serve and obey him. But if you rebel against God, God's hand will be against you. And what we see in time is that Saul would not obey God in two areas. In chapter 13, he offered the sacrifice to God that only the priests were to offer. Samuel had told him to wait seven days for him to arrive. But Saul saw that Samuel was late in coming and some of his army were going home. They were drifting off. And so Saul offered the sacrifice to God that he was not to do. He intruded into the priestly office. And secondly, in chapter 15, Saul disobeyed God's command to destroy the Amalekites for their sin. God wanted Saul to carry out his command completely. And Saul again thought he had a better idea and he took the best of the spoils and he spared the king and he did all of these things under his own initiative. And when Samuel came and confronted him, Saul made excuses. And he said, I did obey the Lord. But he did not. Saul's life was a pattern of partial obedience. Over and over again, he would do part of what God said, but not all. He would pick and choose what he thought was good, what he wanted to do and what he didn't want to do. And that's the way he lived his life. But partial obedience is disobedience. That's not following God with a whole heart. That's not being given over totally to Him. And Saul's sin would cost him the kingdom. And God would look for another man whose heart was fully devoted to him. 
In 1 Samuel 15, we see these words. Samuel said to him, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance is like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. It's not that Saul didn't do some, you know, good things in the eyes of the people, you know, where he would lead them, or he would want to offer a sacrifice, or he would want to do this or that. But Saul was not fully devoted to God, and he disobeyed in so many areas that the time came when God would reject Saul as king and look for another one. And I think about that in our own life. We are also told that we are representatives in this world. We are ambassadors for Christ. And the world is watching us, and the truth is that sometimes the only Bible some people are going to read is you and me and the way that we live. And when we disobey God, we give people an opportunity to reject Christ. We give a distorted impression of what God is like. Now, none of us are perfect. We are all going to sin at times, but it's how we deal with that sin. It's what we say to God and what we say to others and being honest about it or admitting our sin and turning from it, being true in terms of our heart and our commitment to follow Christ. We are to be an example to others. So what do we do with a passage like this? How do we apply it or what can we learn? Well, if we see ourselves giving in to any of these dangers, now is the time to deal with it before it's too late. Catch it early, if you will. Don't let it become a pattern in your life of partial obedience. There's the danger of phoniness, and we need to be real and genuine with God, not putting on a mask or not pretending to be more spiritual than we are. It's the danger of conformity, the temptation to want to be like everybody else and to fit in with the world, when instead we should be concerned about being more and more like Jesus. And there's the danger of partial obedience, of picking and choosing in the Scripture what we want to follow and what we want to leave out. Will we be a people who follow God with all our heart? What else do we learn from this chapter of the story? We learn that God is seeking people who are willing to trust and obey Him whatever the circumstances. We see that although parents may be faithful, it does not guarantee their children will be. Each person must make their own decision to follow Jesus Christ. And thirdly, we learn that God's people are called to be like Christ, not to conform to the culture around them. Let's pray. Father, these things are serious matters, and it's sobering. And I pray that we would be honest with you. Lord, think of what David prayed when he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. And try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Father, would you reveal our sin? And I pray that our heart attitude would be like Samuel, to be humble and teachable and willing to obey. And Father, would you by your Holy Spirit empower us to live differently, change us from the inside out to be more and more like your Son. God, I thank you that you are able to do it And you will when we walk with you. Amen.